0: let the uh, children be dismissed for a junior church at this time and i'd like you all to turn in your bibles to the gospel of matthew to the text that ron just read for us matthew chapter 6 <clears throat> matthew chapter 6 is a uh, fascinating text we live in an interesting time in our world if you have been watching the news or keeping up with it on the internet, whichever is your choice, Uh, it is impossible to watch what's happening in our world and not at some level be troubled. Maybe put to worry and anxiety. Read about what's happening in uh, Mumbai, India. I I was there when it was called Bombay in 1998. Flew into that airport, spent time in that city. Uh... A fearsome assault that took the lives of over 195 people, and it was so simple. It was so simple. I don't know about you, but the question that ran it through my mind was this why hasn't that happened here? We are so vulnerable and free. It can cause us to experience some anxiety. And then I heard the sad news on Friday Guy goes to work in the morning. To open a retail store to watch people enjoying buying Christmas presents. And his life is snuffed out like that. Gone. Gone. Say, where am I really safe? Where can I really be free from anxiousness and the tendency to worry? Because I live in a world that's troubled, I live in a world that has serious issues. And yet I cannot escape the ramifications of the text before us. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry. Verse 28, why do you worry? Verse 31, so do not worry. This morning I want to unpack this text for you in light of the times in which we live. I want to encourage an overcoming of anxiety by being brave in the God that we have been called to love and serve, our Redeemer. Because I live in an unpredictable world where just about anything can happen at just about any time. We are not as safe as we were. In terms of the economic crisis, we are not as safe. Your money is not safe. That which you're counting on to provide stability down the road in your life is not any longer safe. The first question I want to answer to help us to cultivate a bravery that overcomes anxiety for the glory of God is this. I want to answer the question, what is this thing called worry? It is evidently the theme of the text before us. Uh, I went through with my uh, pen and circled the word worry as it occurs in this passage of Scripture. I think I am accounting for about six or seven times, depending on the translation that you have. And the word worry is implied probably an equal number of times in the various verbs that are in the text. So approximately 14 times the Savior refers to worry and commands us to not do it. Well, if I'm going to... Not do it. I need to understand what it is that I'm prone to do that the Savior is seeking to protect me from. What is worry? One writer puts it this way. It is to be anxious and troubled in in heart, in this context, in a way that leads me to doubt that God is fundamentally and essentially good. Okay, an anxiety, an anxiousness, a troubling in my heart, in such a way that it leads me to doubt that God is in fact good. Barclay said it this way, a careworn, worried fear that takes all the joy out of life. A careworn, worried attitude, fear, that takes all the joy out of life. Anybody here this morning ever been guilty of that? Or you find that the smile that used to be on my face has been erased by circumstances? and by a weary, anxious, caring about such things. If I'm going to overcome it for the glory of God, I first need to say, well, what is it? And Jesus helps us to understand what it is, because in verse 26, by the way, if you find me struggling to find the text this morning, these pages in my Bible, Matthew 5-7, through are entirely red, because I have the red letter Bible, and I'm too old for it. So if you see me stopping to look for the words, that's really what I'm doing, okay? Actually, can you, guys, can you bring up the, these lights for me? Someone back there? just No, oh, I'm in Luke. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Okay, so what is worry? Anxious, troubled heart in a way that leads me to doubt that God is good all the time. Verse 26. Here's what Jesus says. You that are prone to worry about clothes, about what you're going to wear. Is, he says, isn't life more important than food and the body more important than clothes, young ladies? No, it doesn't say that, I'm sorry. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more worthy than they of God's sovereign, powerful protection? Look at the birds, and the idea of look here is to set your eyes upon. It's a two-part Greek word. He could use a word that's singular, but it's a word that has a preposition tied into it. Look upon as to study so as to understand and grasp the significance of that which is being viewed. Look at them. They don't plant, they don't harvest, they don't store food in barns, and their lives are characteristically free from worry. They are never straining to see a future which they cannot see. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Straining to see what's going to happen down the road, trying to predict how things are really going to be tomorrow? Look at the birds. We sometimes have feeders behind our house that have food in them. Right now we have feeders that are there, but there's no food. Disappointed birds. But when you watch them, there is a, just a fascinating rhythm to what happens for them, they just come and they go. Do they look panicked or worried? No, they seem to be carefree. Jesus says to His disciples, why do you worry? In fact, stop worrying. Look at the birds of the sky. See how God provides for them. They are never seeking to find security in things stored up for the future. That's the idea. They don't store up in barns. They don't find security in what they've tucked away in a little hole in a tree somewhere. They're different than squirrels. Okay, the squirrels go into a frenzy uh, in early fall. Don't they pick up walnuts and tucking them away, burying them in places? Last year I watched one climb one of those pine trees across the back of our house, and he just said, I was looking out the window, it was the weirdest thing, because squirrels don't typically come that far away from a tree line. He came up, climbed the pine tree, and put a walnut about a foot down from the top of the tree, and then went down and walked away. I went down and took that walnut. (laughs) He's worried, okay? Squirrels do that. Birds don't do that. They expect that there's going to be an abundance of provision. If they just do what they were created to do, their needs will be met. Jesus says, Look at them. Be like them. But then he sets up a contrast at the end of the verse. Our, your Father, your heavenly, think about this, your heavenly Father, your Father in heaven, assuming what? That all of you have a physical Father who has limited capacities and abilities. Your heavenly Father feeds them. That's why they're not worried. They're used to searching for food and finding it. That is their normal experience. And then he asked this question to his disciples. Are you not more valuable than they? Than who? Than the birds that not one of them falls from the sky without God knowing it happened. Are you not by contrast, if God feeds them, how much more? That's the way the argument sets up. Arguing from a lesser story about the birds to a greater story of the life of a child of God's. A child of God should live with confidence because they know that God has promised give the, to give them food, shelter, and clothing. He has promised that He will not abandon you. Worry is when I fear that God is not going to meet my needs. The question Jesus is asking is this. Are you not comparatively much more valuable to God? What is Jesus saying to His disciples? I think I can summarize it in these four words. I love you more. Look at how God takes care of the birds. I love you more. See the love of God, let it be the means by which you kill worry. The other part of the definition of worry that I'll give you this morning is this. Worry is clearly and substantially forbidden in this text. Three times there is a command that calls us to stop doing something that we are probably already doing. It's a command in the present. Stop worrying. Stop the habit that you are so prone to fall into of accusing God of not being good in a way that dishonors Him before a watching world. When your world shakes, be the person who says, though He slay me, I will trust Him. Kill worry by confessing a profound Deep trust in God. This text, let me just say this quickly, is not forbidding wise planning or genuine concern, but it is forbidding a degree of fear, a preoccupation with concerns that distracts us from the glory and power of our God, of our Heavenly Father. So, worry is an anxious, troubled heart that leads me to doubt that God is good. What are the causes of worry? Okay, just think about this for a second. What causes you to be anxious? What causes you to be pushed to a point where you live as if God does not exist? What circumstances in your life are causing you to spin a bit into a frenzy? What is it that captures your attention this morning that is making it hard for you to worship God in spirit and in truth? What is it that's making hearing the Word of God and the promises of God a struggle? What is the issue in your life? that just keeps you kind of twisted up in knots inside. I want you to think about it. I want to give you from this passage of Scripture three characteristics of the things that we worry about, of the causes of worry. And I I want to say this. These are not mentioned in the text, but these are possibilities. Sometimes it is our own laziness, not preparing for the future using the resources that God has given us. That's one possibility. Sometimes it's disobedience. I've done something wrong in my life, and I'm waiting for God to catch up with me. Okay? That will cause some degree of worry. But that is forgivable, and it is something that you can confess. Illustration. Bald tires on your car. You can do something about that. You can change them. Fuel is low. Now, I have different theories on that. Okay? You can stop and get some, or you can kind of see how far you can go once the light comes on. Okay? Your choice. But it is something that may cause you to be like, oh, like well, pull over and get some gas. Get, in other words, that's, that's the kind of worry or concern that you can do something about. Okay? Uh, another illustration. If you lie on your taxes as a Christian, okay, here's what the Bible says. The, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. If you want to experience God-honoring, trust and boldness in your life, a freedom from anxiety and worry, live right before God. Do what you can do, because there are things that are going to seek to steal your joy and bring you to a place of anxiety and twistedness inside. What are the things that cause us to worry and belittle God by communicating a fear of His concern for you? What are they? Number one, they are this, verse 27. Listen to what this says. Which of you by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? No hands. No hands. How many of you can shorten your life by worry? Okay, the studies prove that if you are caught up with anxiety, twisted up inside to the point where you feel it in your heart, doing physical damage to your life, What are the things that cause us to worry? One of them is this, things I cannot change. Things I simply cannot change. That's why Jesus says, why do you worry about the length of your life? You can't extend it anyhow. I'm in charge of that. Trust me with your life. Worry is, in this context, unproductive. It is a waste of time. Young people, trust me on this. I, from experience, speak. It doesn't change your grades. Studying does. Worry doesn't change them. You can sit there and say, I'm so concerned about this test that I have on Monday after Thanksgiving break when I've been spending all this time with my friends and I'm so worried about it. Well, how do you get rid of the worry? Change what you can change, but trust God with the things that you cannot control. Trust God. Another thing in verse 34 that causes us anxiety... Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough, and the word here is fascinating, the word really could be translated evil, it's kakos, it's a word that takes on kind of a strong negative. Each day has enough negatives of its own. Don't borrow from tomorrow, because if you do, you will destroy your joy today. Why? Because that kind of a worry is characterized by seeking to control things that you cannot control. You can't control people. You can't control your health. You can't control certain circumstances in your life. You can't see into the future. God can. God can. He sees tomorrow. Why? He is outside of time. He speaks about the future as if it is a done deal. I can't. And when I focus too much on tomorrow, you know what? I can come up with the most horrific sets of circumstances. And get into knots over things that I absolutely have zero control over. And this, this last one is not here in the text, but this is one that I don't know if you're like me. But you ever find yourself worrying over things that will never happen? And you love being wrong? Worrying over things that, you know what, that never happened. That had my attention, that had me all twisted up in knots, and it simply never happened. It's embarrassing how often we are wrong about such things. And God's just saying, why don't you simply trust me? Why don't you trust me? Let tomorrow in my capable hands. And then there is this odd question in the middle of the text. Perhaps the young ladies can relate to this question better than the young men. By observation, I assume that they do. Verse 28 says this, And why do you worry about clothes? Love that question. Why do you worry about clothes? Here's what fascinates me about the question. How many of you seriously are worried about whether when you wake up tomorrow, am I gonna have clothes to wear? My girls are smiling. I have no why are you guys laughing? I know why they're laughing. How many of you ever woke up and thought, you know what, will I have clothes tomorrow? In this context, what are clothes? What are they? In the ancient world, where you didn't have Walmart down the road, where you didn't have coal selling things for two denarii, what what are clothes? You know what clothes are? Clothes are essential for survival in frigid nights. Clothes in that culture kept you alive. Without them, you would die. That's the ancient world. That's the setting in which Jesus brings up this fascinating question. It's an odd question because when I look in my closet, I'm choosing between the things that are there to decide what I'm going to wear. That's my concern. This is not a question being asked by a young lady getting ready to go to the prom or to the football game on Friday night. Why are you worried about clothes? That's not who this question is addressed to. It's addressed to people that are saying, will I have shelter? Things that are essential to life. In our culture, clothes are essential to identity. How people view me. And we get so twisted up. And Jesus is saying to them, why do you worry about the necessities of life? I've made a promise to you, and that is that I will meet your needs. The question for them was, can I afford The cover that is essential to survival, which then leads me to the next question that I want to ask this morning. What are the effects of worry on my life, on my testimony, on the God that I serve? What are the effects if I allow it to be caused in my life? An anxiety, a troubledness of heart that leads me to communicate fear about God. Does it matter? That's the question. Jesus says stop it three times. My question this morning is, does it matter if I allow and tolerate God-belittling anxiety in my life? Does it matter? Is it significant? I think we have to ask, what are the effects that Jesus points to in this text? Look at verse 28. Verse 28. Why do you worry about clothes? See, and look at this, see how the lilies of the field grow. Okay? Okay? And one writer put it this way. He said, how many uh, lilies of the, of the field? Did I say sea? I thought I said lilies of the sea. Did I say that? Okay. Lilies of the field. Okay. See how the lilies of the field go. One writer made this observation. He said, how many of the lilies that are out there ever are seen by the human eye? That's a fascinating question. He said, look, look at this, this innumerable host of flowers. And why does he point the flowers? Well, one, it might be a reminder to husbands that your wives would like flowers. So see how the lilies of the field grow. Go get some for your wife. Or he could be saying this. Look at the next part of the verse. They do not labor or spin. They're as fixed to a shaft that provides stability. They don't work at what they are. They are made what they are by God's design. Let's let that settle in. They are what they are by God's design. They make no contribution to their beauty. And yet they are stunning. People go around with cameras and take pictures of them. Look at this flower. Yeah, well, who do you give glory to for that flower? For the way it's arrayed. And why does Jesus go to this question? Why does he tell them, look at the lilies of the field. Set your mind on and study botany and you'll learn about God. Verse 29, yet I tell you that Solomon, now if you're, not really familiar with the Word of God, you're going to have a question here. What's this thing about Solomon? Solomon was a king chosen by God with the best intellects, with the greatest resources, with the greatest mind to rule a kingdom so that when other ancient kings came to see the wealth and intelligence and productivity of Solomon's kingdom, they were astonished. The queen of Sheba leaves saying, I never thought... I would say something that glorious. You know what Jesus says? Solomon, arrayed in his robe, sitting on his throne with the lions on each side, does not compare to what? A flower. Now, if I'm Solomon, I am like frosted when I hear that. All the pomp, all the you know the robes, everything just set up to make the king look glorious and powerful and impenetrable, can't be defeated. And Jesus says, see that flower? Solomon can't hold a candle to that flower. Why is he saying that? What is the lesson he wants to communicate to you about the danger of worry? Here's the way the message puts it. It says, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop. But have you ever seen such color and design quite like that now okay now here here's the transition have you ever seen anyone that looked as beautiful as an orchid now i don't know if that would be complimentary to my wife if i said you look like an orchid today i don't know if that would work i won't try that i promise girls i promise i won't try that Have you ever seen such color and design quite like that? Now, if God gives such attention, here's the key, if God gives such ornate, detailed, creative attention to flowers that are all around the world, most of them never observed, that's the part of this text that astonishes me. Look at one. If God gives such attention to wildflowers, and then this is what he says, most of which are never seen, don't you think that He will attend to you? Folks, answer that question. Jesus is saying to you, if God gives such amazing attention to flowers that He creates them so glorious, how do you think He feels about you that He purchased with the shed blood of His Son? How does He feel about you? Bad thoughts should just drive anxiety out of our hearts. When we worry, here's what it does. It kills God-exalting contentment and joy in my life. When I worry about whether my needs are going to be met in my life, I am I'm entertaining a, a mindset that is destroying the glory of God, who has promised that, look, I love flowers, and I have given them great glory, but I love you more. And that's the theme that just emerges in this text. If a lack of contentment belittles the glory of God, then trust in Him must certainly be the greatest means by which His children can honor and glorify Him. I love how it says it in verse 30. Notice what this says. If that is how God close the grass of the field. Now, you may read that and say, okay, that's poetic. No, I think it's more than poetic. I think it's talking about the active work of God in creating every flower on this planet. I think it's the work of God intricately controlling the created system that he made. And this text, Jesus says that he, that flower you're looking at, on your table, he clothed that. In his infinite inexhaustible sovereignty, he covered even the flower. And here's what Jesus says, every time you look at a flower so ornately and intricately designed, remember that God loves you more. And by the way, Bill Gates doesn't hold a candle. Warren Buffett, with all his power and money, doesn't hold a candle. President Bush and President-elect Obama don't hold a candle that flower but you in contrast as God's child you have his full attention when you're crying and no one sees it that's why the psalmist says to God he says God put my tears in your bottle count my sorrow see it I trust you let that truth every time you look at a flower to say god show me your glory you grew that flower you designed that flower you clothed it with intricate beauty and you love me so much more so the danger of worry it kills god exalting contentment and joy and look folks i'm going to tell you something worry is prevalent but worry is not fun it's not fun It's not fun to have your life disoriented because you're concerned about things that you can't control, that you can't change, and that will never happen. It's not fun. And worse than losing your happiness is you steal glory from God. And may God just allow us to see how God belittling such anxiety that captures our hearts that is so easy in response to the times in which we live. It is so natural, isn't it? It's easy just to worry about things. To be God-less in our perspectives. Verses 31 and 32. Just watch how Jesus takes this home now. He says, So do not worry. And, and right before that, what does He say? O ye of little faith, of insignificant, puny, hard to find faith. That's the issue here. Trust that yields contentment honors God. Trust that, or, or, or uh, worry that, Builds a lack of contentment, dishonors Him. So He says, so do not worry. I would love to know the tone of that statement. I would love to hear the voice inflection of the Savior as He, God in flesh, says to His disciples, I did that flower, and that one there, and that one there, and that one there, all of them, I did all of them. So don't worry. Just like a mom dad saying to a child that has those night frights that are unjustifiable yet real, don't worry. I know you're afraid, but don't worry. I'm right here. Don't worry, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Okay, do you get the staccato? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? What are they going to think when they see me? Am I thinning up? All the, the things that run through our mind, that capture our attention, that cause us to worry about things that are totally irrelevant. He says, so don't don't get into this staccato, this natural flow of anxiety. And this next statement should just, like, right between the eyes. Pagans run after all those things. then you've got to ask yourself, okay, who are the pagans? You know what most people think? My neighbors, they're the pagans. Okay? What is a pagan? Not a motorcycle gang in this text. You know what a pagan is? Someone that doesn't know God. It's that simple. Someone who doesn't know the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a pagan. It's not a word meant to hammer people. It's just to say there are people that know God personally, deeply, intimately. And there are people that don't. And the people that don't run through the litany of questions. What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? Always worried and frenzied. Do you see how that belittles God? Do you see how that dishonors His love and concern for you? An anxious Christian is, practically speaking, a pagan. An anxious Christian who is someone who knows the glorious God and acts as if He doesn't exist. May God help us. May God help us. In our worry, we communicate a weak, aloof, unreliable, untrustworthy God to the world around us. I want to ask you this question this morning, friends. After watching how you respond to trouble in your life, would the world around you want to know your God? They watch you respond to the same circumstances that they face. Would they, as they watch you, want to know your God? You can answer that. Just can. Turn that thing off. Who is that? I have no idea who it is. Okay. What is... What does worry do? What is its effect? It does this. In this text, we look like pagans, and when we do that, it silences or kills witness. And when you trust God, it always enhances your witness for God. When people see you going through the same stuff that they go through, and your life isn't thrown into a total tailspin, they're looking at your God. They're wondering, what is the difference between their life and my life, and the difference fundamentally should be that I know God personally. He clothes me. He meets my needs. He's promised to care for and take care of me. The last thing that worry does, the effect is it kills brave obedience while trust inspires brave obedience. Jesus says to His disciples, O ye of little faith, and the lack of faith and trust in the provision of God is what then leads to anxiety and worry in the heart. Folks, if you say, Pastor Tim, I'm wrestling with worry, then what you need to do is cultivate faith and trust in God. You need to get in the Word of God and start doing what I did a couple months ago. Start memorizing some promises. Psalm 115.3 is the promise that I've been hanging on to. Our God is in the heavens, and He does what pleases Him. You know what that causes me to do? Causes me to relax. Psalm 46.10 in the message. It says, step out of the traffic and know that I am God above politics, above everything. He's above it all. He controls it all. All the things that I am prone to worry about. I want you to take this test this morning. Dear, dear teen friend whom I love. You're wrestling with the question: Will I be a light? Will I be liked? Will I be approved? Will I succeed? Am I pretty? Am I handsome, like PT? Will I get into the right college? Will I earn lots of money? I want to say to you this morning: Stop. Just stop, and trust God. All the things about you know, applying for college, and am I to get the school that my parents want me to get into, or that my friends want me to get into? And it just throws you into a tailspin. Stop. Trust God with the things that you can't change and that you can't control while you act responsibly doing your part before God. Do your very best and let the results with God. Will you trust Him? Will you relax? And say, God, my life is in Your hands and I trust You with it. Young, adult, single, haven't found the perfect person yet. I have news for you today that should cause you to relax. Either they don't exist or they are taken The question you need to wrestle with is this. Will I trust God? His timing, His provision, His plan for purity, His plan of waiting for a godly Christian mate instead of taking matters into your own hands. Will you trust Him? In a way that causes you to cling to righteousness so that you don't have to flee when others are fleeing. But you can be bold in God. Here this morning, married, you've had struggles. We all do. We all do. You're asking, will I ever be happy? Will my husband or my wife ever change? My answer to you this morning is maybe. Maybe. But if they don't, it does not change the character of God. You need to cultivate a trust in Him that draws you through those difficult times. Work-related issues today. Will I have my job? There is someone in our church who knows as of January 1st, their source of income is gone. Gone. And there are many sitting here this morning who are thinking, that's probably going to be me next. And the question we have to ask is, will I trust God? You're asking, will I be able to provide for my family? God's saying Hugh, you, I already got that covered. Trust me. Trust me in a way that exalts me in the midst of the circumstance that God has allowed to come into your life. Mom and dad. Yeah, I can relate on this one. Three daughters. For whom I believe I would lay down my life. Looking out the bathroom window three weeks ago and watching my daughter drive to school like she has been doing all year. With mom in the car. This day, mom wasn't in the car. Somebody turned 17. 17. And is driving themselves to school. Do I trust God? Not as much as I should. Not as much as I should. Not as much as I wish I did. Not as much as I wish I did. Last question, how can I defeat worry? And I just do this quickly. How can I stop the God-belittling habit of anxiety and worry that twists me in knots and makes me look like a godless man? How do I end that? Number one is this. Confess it as sin. Because that's what it is by definition. Acknowledge it as sin and simply say, God, I have been in this circumstance in my life that you identified at the beginning of the sermon. In that circumstance, I have been living as if you do not exist. And I confess that. This morning I want to heed the admonition of Peter who struggled so much. Cast all your cares upon him. He cares for you. He wants to meet your needs. He is committed to meeting your needs. Stop justifying it as if it's just concern on steroids. It's worry. It's anxiety. Confess it because it dishonors God. Secondly, actively seek God's glory in all things. Verse 33 is centered to this text, and I believe it is where Jesus is going the whole time. Seek first the glory, the kingdom, the rule, the control of God in your life. And then what happens? All these things. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? All these things will be added to you. Folks, I don't know about you, but that's a relief. Seek God's glory first. Be sure that in your circumstances, the honor of God is central. That you know that that is what's at stake more than anything else. And make a commitment to say, God, I want you to be glorified in these circumstances, in any circumstance in my life. Actively seek it. And his promises, verse 31, I'll take care of the rest. I'll take care of the rest. And then the, the thought that asked me to have them sing the song, I have a father. Trust your father in heaven. You want to kill worry? Trust your dad. Trust your dad. Now, I know for some of you here this morning, when I say that, you get all kinds of bells going off in your mind because your pl- experience with your father was not pleasant. And you're thinking, you know what? I'd like to trust God as my Father, but the example of Father in my life destroyed any possibility of God being a great Father. I want to call you back to what comes before this text and what comes after it. It is the Lord's Prayer when Jesus starts by saying what? Our Father. If I go over to chapter 7, He says, Asking you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Come down to Verse 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Here's the contrast. How much more will your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? To who? To His children. You may act like a pagan. You may be practically an atheist, but you're not. You're a child of God if you've trusted Him. Stop acting like a pagan. Act like an individual that knows God in His glory, in His power, in His capacity to meet needs and to satisfy. And you will find that worry begins to fade away. Just rehearse the promises of God. Trust your Father in heaven. When I was about thirteen years old, I worked on a dairy farm, and if, if you've heard the story before, uh, act like you never heard it. Okay. Uh, I worked with a young guy named Jay Koffler. He was—he's uh, was kind of built like Brennan, strong guy. Uh, he picked me up on his motorcycle at four fifteen in the morning to go milk cows, and then we do whatever we do throughout the day at the uh, at the farm. Uh, i liked this guy he liked me as a young person he was a pagan i heard i learned vocabulary from him that i'd never heard grew up in a christian school worked with my dad when i was 13 to 15 i worked outside of my dad's care and uh i learned things that are unfortunate <laughs> but this guy loved me he was like a big brother a strong guy on the farm uh, one day, he and I were painting a th- a two-and-a-half-story uh, farmhouse that had a an eight-foot shed out the bottom of it on the side. It was a tin roof, and we were painting the tin roof. Well, think about this. If you're working from the left side to the right side and you're painting, and all of a sudden, you're looking down, and you're saying, well, it's about 25 feet right there. I'm like, Jay, how do we paint this last section? Because Merle, the farmer, is not going to be happy if we don't finish the job. And Jay says, i got a plan. He says, uh, you get on the ladder, and he's standing down on the eight-foot roof, and I'm getting ready to go up on the roof above him. And you get on the ladder, and I'll pick it up, and I'll push it up the roof, and then you climb to the top end of the ladder. And keep in mind, fear causes me to totally, or a height causes me to totally freeze. Okay, I'm scary at heights, okay? So I climb all the way to the peak of the roof, and I hear Jay uncharacteristically saying, I can't hold it. Didn't have time for a conversation then that we did have later. I looked down this way. It was 25 feet. The next thing I know is I'm standing beside him from the peak of the roof. And I'm not, like, a great athletic kind of person. I went from the peak of the roof down a 15-foot span of roof, dropped 8 feet, and landed on a sloped roof beside him. I wasn't laying flat either. I was standing up. He looked at me, and I looked at him. I said, what now, right? I was like, two times in my life I've had God do that, where I was like, okay, I don't have an explanation for what just happened, but I know I'm standing here. Now, what was my mistake that day? You know what my mistake was that day? I trusted someone who has great capacities, but not unlimited capacities. Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven take care of you? Jay said to me, Tim, I can't hold it. I am not strong enough. Here's a thought that ran through my mind yesterday. God never has to say that. God has never overcommitted He's never made a promise he can't keep. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, though father and mother forsake you, I will never. Meaning, I am not even capable of doing that. Folks, do you understand how stupid worry is? That painful anxiety in the heart that belittles and destroys the glory of God, that steals your happiness and makes you no fun to be around? How many of you say, you know what, my ministry is to people that worry? I like being with people who wrestle with anxiety. I know when I'm when I'm wrestling with worry, I'm not fun to be around. I don't like being around myself. You know what, you know what most people do when they get caught up in this, and you may take this test? If you find yourself sleeping in instead of getting up and facing life and facing yourself, you're probably wrestling with a really serious battle with anxiety and worry that belittles God. And what you need to do laying in bed is say to yourself, I have a father. I may not like myself today, but he loves me. He is committed to meeting my needs today. So I'm going to get up and face down my fears in a way that exalts the glory of God. I'm not going to lay in bed and be a pagan. All you people that are night owls that sleep in, in the morning, you're pagans, okay? Just kidding. I'm just suspicious of that, okay? Revelation 19:11. I want you to think about this. The Bible says that when Jesus comes, written on his thigh is this name. He is called faithful and true. He is called faithful and true. Because he is faithful, he should destroy worry in my life. He should drive out the anxiety in my heart that belittles God. One of the things I, 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 I meditated on yesterday was this. I, my friend, Jay, did not want to let me down. He didn't want to fail me, he liked me, but that didn't make him capable. God loves you more, more, and he is incapable, think about this, he is incapable of failing you. Say to my girls, I'll be there, I'll take care of you, I'll do whatever you need, I'm there. That's not true. I hate to say it, but that's not true. All I can say is this, I will do everything I can. That's all I have. It's limited. God says to you, I will do everything that you need me to do for you, and he can. He's never overcommitted. He's never balked on a commitment, never failed on a promise. His capacities are unlimited. This morning, friend, can you say the Creator who makes the lilies of the field, is my heavenly Father. It is easy to say the Lord's Prayer out loud, but can you say it personally? Can you say, my Father who is in heaven? Can you say Psalm 23, the psalm that is quoted to build courage in our hearts? Can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? Can you say that is a personal reality? This morning your biggest fear may be this. You're a sinner, and you know it. The depths of it are only known by you. And you're wondering if God loves you. My response to your anxiety about your future, that that anxiety is a result of your rebellion against God, my answer to you is this. That rebellion was placed on the Son of God by the one who wants to be your Father. He died on the cross to pay the price for your sin. Christian, if you're here this morning, somebody says, how do you know God loves you? It is the cross of Christ, is it not? We know love by this. Jesus Christ laid down His life to purchase us. If you this morning don't know him personally, I beg of you, I beg of you to kill worry and anxiety in your life over your sin by finding it completely eliminated and forgiven by the grace of God. If then he died for you, can't you trust him to care for you? If he died for you and rose from the dead to demonstrate his power, can't you trust him to care for you? An old song came to mind yesterday. It says, I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry over the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him, for he knows what is ahead. Every step is getting brighter as the golden stairs I climb, every burden's getting lighter. Every cloud is silver lining. There the sun is always shining. There no fear will dim the eye at the ending of the rainbow where the mountains touch the sky. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty, but the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that is my portion may be through the flame or flood, but his presence goes before me. And I'm covered with his blood. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand. Father, this morning we can.